Okay, so we talked a lot about CECs and other things. So really what we're going to focus on right now is on uh, the cations and a soil sample that you might get back. And how do you work with that? What do you do with that soil sample? How do you extrapolate valuable information from essentially a document that's been emailed to you or mailed to you? So in this particular example, I'm using a soil. Uh, it's... a uh, High precipitation, a soil that's in an environment that rains a lot, sees a lot of precipitation. So you, so you see that you have a high pH, uh, but again, like I mentioned earlier, this is, I'm sorry, that's a CEC. We have a low pH. Uh, that's a high base saturation of hydrogen, but we have a, a CEC of 6.24. And then, of course, they tell us how much, uh, how much they found, the value found in the soil, the desired value. Uh, of, of, of calcium, then you have magnesium, desired value, et cetera, et cetera, potassium, and sodium. The sodium, they, this particular lab typically, typically uh, doesn't give you a desired value of sodium because most people don't really care to put sodium down uh, in their soils. But, um, and of course, that really depends on your production system, where you are. So uh, they don't just go off and assume that you're in an area where it's safe to use sodium because uh, some people have uh, water quality issues, some people are. Uh, in uh, arid regions where you don't really want to be adding sodium to a soil that is probably uh, never going to wash off. Uh, so they don't make those assumptions. Other labs might. Uh, some labs don't even bother testing for sodium. So, you know, people ask me, is this lab good enough or is that lab or the other lab good enough? And the question that the answer that I always give is you need a laboratory where you know that for one, preferably they're using a molecular extraction for phosphorus and for some of the other nutrients. Uh, which is usually ammonium acetate extraction. And then um, uh, you want, you, it's really important that you get total cation exchange capacity, not just cation exchange capacity. There's quite a difference. So total cation exchange capacity is they actually tested and tried to figure out how many colloids, negative colloid exchange sites are on that soil. You, you really need to know that because if you don't know that, uh, we really don't know everything else. You, you don't know your base saturations. And if you don't know your, base, your percent base saturations, then how do you balance your soil? Uh, you just, you know, it's, it's incomplete information, folks. It's all it really is. So then you look at, uh, you know, things like organic matter are pretty uh, important as well. Uh, sulfur is very important. Phosphorus is important. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium are important. And then you have their base saturations. And then you have the boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, and aluminum. This is pretty much your, your major trace elements with the, and your, and your uh, major nutrients and macronutrients. So that's what you really, where you really, really need to start. So this, what you're looking at, is a basic test. Uh, You've got to get things right with a basic test first. And then start looking to get more expensive tests to seek for micronutrients and trace minerals like boron and copper and, I'm sorry, not boron, uh, uh, cobalt and uh, iodine and um, others that you can test for. I, I can't, I just had it in my mind, but I, it slipped my mind. But uh, we'll, we're, we're going to look at this and, and I'm going to walk you through what I would normally do with something like this. And of course, what we're going to actually be going through now is in what this book talks about, largely what this book talks about. So first, our first goal is we saw all our different ba base saturations, and they were not where, I, where at least I would like to see them. So the goal for this example is 
I'm simply going to try to set up a base saturation of 65% of calcium. 15% for magnesium, 4% base saturation for potassium, 2% for sodium, and then we'll aim for 10% of hydrogen. Now, in some examples, if I was using something out in the desert where it's an alkal uh, alkalinic soil, you know, pH is above 7, I have nothing, I have no percent uh, base saturation for hydrogen, I would have to manage a little bit differently. I wouldn't reserve this for hydrogen, but I don't want, it's not desirable for you to knock off all your hydrogen off your colloids and totally saturate it. It's really, it's really not a condition you want to put your soil under. Uh, you really need that there for uh, exchanging nutrients. And of course, there's 5% for all the other cations. So a lot of labs don't test for this right here. So if you go back, this actually comes up. Uh, exchangeable, no, other bases, 7%. So that's pretty much telling me that things other than cal calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and hydrogen are on your colloid. So this could be all these other nutrients that are down here and others that perhaps you didn't even test for. So now, uh, we know what our goal is, so now I need to know total CEC, uh, pounds of each cation needed to fully, which is essentially how many, counts, how many pounds of a particular given cation it takes to fully saturate a CEC of one. Does that make sense? All right. So iron and manganese tend to complex in the soils and are not necessarily occupying space in the colloids, so sometimes... They're not really referred, we don't really associate a base saturation with them because they're complexed. They're not really bonded. They, form, they precipitated into something uh, that you need to break loose through microbial processes. Uh, molybdenum is also taken up as a cation, as an anion. Uh, so again, it's not on the colloid. Cobalt was not tested, so we won't worry about it. Aluminum drives acidity, so we don't really refer to it as, as a colloid, even though it can be on the colloid but we saw that our aluminum was really not that high, so that probably means I have a, uh, uh, aluminum is not what's driving the acidity in the soil. Uh, anion exchange capacity is negligible, so again, we won't take a look at that. So what we know is a cation exchange capacity, or the CEC, of one micromole per 100 grams of soil is simply telling us that 0.001 moles of negative ionic charges per every 100 grams of soil exists in that particular uh, sample. So a CEC of 1 is telling us that you have 0 0.01 moles per negative ionic charges, of negative ionic charges, I'm sorry, for every 100 grams of soil. Okay, so 100 grams of soil can hold 0 0.001 moles of negative ion charges. That makes sense? Now, if we make the assumption that one acre, six inches deep, weighs on an average of two million pounds, or we can, call, we can look at this as 907,200 grams, then we know that we have 907,200 grams per the acre. So if we have a CEC of 1, we would multiply this by 0 0.00001 moles per gram of soil, right? So that would give me ultimately 9,072 moles of negative charges per acre, six inches deep. Now, if I were to go 12 inches deep, I'd have to double that. If I were to go even deeper than that, 18 inches deep, then I'd have to triple that. So you see where the depth of the soil that you're working dictates really what your multipliers are going to be 
when you're trying to figure out your desired nutrient levels per acre. So he's asking about taking a soil sample and what depth do you put that probe in. So if you see on Logan Labs, they always ask in a paper the depth of the soil sample, and you can write just about anything you want. And this one I did eight inches, but I've, I've kind of gotten to the point where, I, well, okay. This is outdoor fields, I'm sorry. I, I won't say that. I was going down the wrong road. So in uh, media, I just use six inches, even though I really don't go six inches. I make a media, and then I send it off, and I say it's six inches, just for the purpose of... Just for the purpose, yeah, because it's uniform, just for the purpose of calculations. In other words, I want easy numbers. I want six inches. But when I'm working with outdoors, it's critical that you test it exactly what you work it. So if you're working your soil eight inches deep, you better test it eight inches deep. If you're only doing six inches, then test it six inches. Don't go 10 inches deep and then send it off to be tested. And then it comes back and, you know, it's some number that you wouldn't have expected because that's really incomplete information. A second thing I'll add is when you're, doing, when you're taking soil samples, if you're doing it yourself, it's, you know, you're never going to get a real perfect representation of what's going on with your soil. The best you can do is, is, is take the best possible number you can. So when you're taking soil samples, you really want to be, you know, to the best of your ability, submitting a sample that properly represents the soil you're attempting to work with. Okay? So... It's typically recommended that you take 15, uh, 15 probes or core samples for every sample you submit to the lab. So if you're going to say you're working 1,000 square feet, well, then you probe that 1,000 square feet 15 times. If you're, if you're testing 20 acres, then you test those 20 acres 15 times and you distribute it randomly throughout those 20 acres. You don't focus in one area, otherwise you're gonna get incomplete information. Now. When we start looking at extremes, okay, some people will ask sometimes, well, what's, you know, what's the biggest area I should consider testing? In other words, um, you know, I have somebody, will, perhaps somebody will ask, I have 100 acres of field that I work. How should I test it? Do I really need to be testing every acre? Or do I need to be testing every 1,000 square feet? Or do I need to test the whole thing as one? Well, it's generally believed that you should test, you should break it down in quadrants no larger than 20 acres, no matter how big your farm is. That's a big chunk. But the thing is, the bigger the farm is, you know, the more money it takes to really fix it. So you have to think about what crops you're growing. And I don't think anybody in here is really farming that big, large scale. I, I don't know, maybe somebody is. But uh, on that large scale of a farming, yeah, you can't afford to be testing every acre or, you know, I mean, just the sampling, the going out there. I mean, if you're farming a thousand acres, just to go out and sample every single acre, who's got time for that? And then if you got to pay for the labor, the labor is going to eat you up. You try to get cheap labor, they're not going to take good samples. Then you're going to get incomplete data. It's not really going to, you know, I mean, it's just not useful. So you have to do it in a means that's practical. So if you've just got a little small family garden, well, then you just test a little small family garden. And if you're growing different crops, then maybe you want to test a garden differently. Maybe you've got a bed that you're growing, you know, one thing, and a bed that you're growing something else. You might want to test them differently. Maybe you've got one bed that's doing exceptionally well, but the other bed is doing really sorry. Uh, then you probably want to test them, you know, differently. So with orchards, I like to go as deep as practical. Uh, so... The problem is that a lot of your activity tends to be in the top six, inches, six to eight inches. So when you start to test below that, you're going below the A horizon down into the, you know, maybe the B horizon, and you're testing soil 
you, you're testing something different. So if you put your core in the ground and you put it in there two feet deep or whatever, you pull it out and you look at the changes in characteristics, each one of those is a horizon. Okay? So as you have a change, you need to change, you need to test each horizon separately. Because if you try to mix all that up and send it off in one sample, you don't know what you're getting. You know, it might be that the top is perfect, the bottom's a mess. So you mix them all together, you get this result. Now you say, oh, I need to do a bunch of this or the other thing. And the reality is the top eight inches are doing great. And you probably have most of your activity going on there. So you'll probably be OK. You come and you dump a whole bunch of excess fertilizers that throw it out of whack. And you may end up having problems. So you, I, I always would recommend to test it per horizon with perennials like that. Um, with big acreage crops, big field crops, web soil survey is your best friend. You go on web soil survey, you look up your fields, uh, you look up the different soil series that you have. And almost every single square foot in the United States has been mapped. So the government, through the, uh, uh, they changed the name on it, what do they call it now? National Conservation Resources Service, uh, through the USDA, has mapped almost all the soils in the United States. There's only a few places where they haven't done it. Uh, the southeastern quadrant of Oregon hasn't been mapped yet. <laughs> There's nothing out there if you know Oregon. Uh, most of Alaska hasn't been mapped yet. Uh, a few parts of Idaho and uh, a couple other places. It's all mostly in the West, you know, just these real rural places out in the middle of nowhere where nobody's farming or nobody's doing anything. So they put it off towards the end. But, I mean, if, if you own it, it's mapped. That simple. It's mostly government, federal land that hasn't, and state lands that haven't been mapped. So you go on to Web Soil Survey, you Google that, you hit the Launch Survey tab, you put your address in there, it'll take you right to your garden, your farm, and you can pull up these maps and you can look at the different series. In fact, you know what? I got a little bit of extra time because let's do that. I'll walk you guys through this. All right, so we're going to go to Google. So I just type Web Soil Survey. Look, it comes up before I'm done. Type on websoilsurvey.nrcs.usda.gov, and here we go. Uh, now, this is the United States. Canada's mapped its soils. Mexico's mapped most of its soils. Uh, Australia's mapped about 80 or 30 or 40 percent of their soils. Uh, most developed nations have mapped their soils. Most of Europe is mapped. You just need to figure out who, if you're not from the United States, you need to figure out who you're or how you get that data. If that data is not available for you online, then uh, you need to go to a local, get with your local uh, ministry of agriculture or whatever it is you got, wherever you're from, and they'll tell you where your maps are or if you happen to end up a missionary overseas somewhere, do that. Uh, but for the sake of us in the United States, I think, is anybody in here not from the United States? And so you look now and you see how he has three different soil series in here. You have the 9B, the 27B, and the 9C. Well, the 9C is off in the road, so you're probably not going to worry about that one. So we'll assume that he's in, you know, his interest is this field right here for the purpose of this demonstration. Now, we're looking at this field here. I'm not sure how big it is, but anyhow, you see you have 27B to the north and 9B to the south. These are two different uh, soil series. I can come over 9B over here. is called Casadero, silty uh, clay loam, 0 to 8% slopes, etc. Uh, and then the other one is 27B, which is... Uh, Mersion silt loam. So he's, you know, right away it tells me these two are silt loams or silt clay loam and then a, a, a silt loam. So you're going to see a difference just right there. You know you have a difference in your sand and your silt clay. 
Uh, I can click on some of these and they can tell me other things like estimated cation exchange capacity, the mineralogy can, uh, uh, down to multiple horizons, uh, different other you know, precipitation issues, whether or not the soil water logs. I mean, there's a ton of information I can figure out about your farm. I could probably figure out more about your farm, the, the, the soils on your farm, than you presently know about it now without ever even going there which is interesting that so much of that information is there. However, it is simply just math. It's not, that doesn't mean that um, it's 100% accurate, but it's surprisingly accurate. The way that they collect this data is that they put uh, different uh, uh, laser and x-ray technology on, a on airplanes and they fly over and they zap everything and they figure out the mineralogy and that's how they draw the lines and they say, okay, well, this is different <laughs> than that. And then they send a soil scientist out to start taking samples of that area and figure out what that soil is. And then once he figures out what it is, then he submits that information and it's entered into the map. So that's where they drew out these lines. So this is, they've been doing this. They started mapping soils in the United States in the, eight, in the 1908 or 1918 or something like that. I mean, over 100 years ago. They started and they started out in the northeast and, uh, and eventually they made it all the way west. And that's where we finally got to the point where we've mapped most of the 48 states, except for a few you know, very rural, spart you know, sparsely populated areas. Uh, so anyhow, everybody in the United States has their soils mapped, and you can figure out a tremendous amount of stuff. So my suggestion was simply to go to your farm, look and see what the different soil series are, um, and test those differently. Okay, so back to where we were, another refresher. We're looking at the top six inches only. We're going to assume the top six inches weighs 2,000 pounds. Uh, and that's a pretty rough number, uh, but for the most part, soils don't really change in weight that much. Uh, they're practically all, you know, without any moisture in them, are about 0.46 grams uh, per centimeter cubed. That's the average density of all soils globally. Um, and uh, so that doesn't really change much. So you can be pretty conf confident with the two, uh, 2 million pounds per, per acre, six inch deep, which is, a acre, which is referred to as an acre furrow slice. Uh, that doesn't really change much. So no matter your production system, most likely that's going to be that way. Uh, Okay, so we figured out that it takes 9,070, or uh, a, a soil that is six inches deep with a cation exchange capacity of one has 9,072 moles of negative ion sites between the colloids and the humus. So we'll move forward. Okay, that's great. So we figured that out. Awesome. Now, uh, how many pounds of a given nutrient does it take? for example, calcium or magnesium, to fully saturate every single colloid and that top six inches of that acre with calcium. Well, the way you figure that out is you take the atomic mass of calcium, which is 40 grams per mole, and then, of course, you've got 9,072 moles. Now, calcium has a plus two ion, which means you need half as much, so you divide by two. And then, uh, of course, you end up with 90,720 grams of calcium, uh, that's not more kilograms. Uh, you divide that number by 453. It gives you pounds to the acre, which gives you about 400. That's where that number comes from. All right. So you'll see that number in this book from Michael Estera. And, you know, people ask, well, where did that number come from? Did he just pull it out of a hat? No, he didn't just pull it out of a hat. This is the, the math and the chemistry where these numbers come from. So the 400 pounds to the acre uh, is what it, it takes 400 pounds to the acre to fully saturate that uh, of calcium, of magnesium. Uh, here's all the math. Atomic mass is 24.3. It takes 243 pounds of magnesium, elemental magnesium per the acre to accomplish the same thing. 
and we can look at a whole spread here. Uh, potassium is 39 grams. Now, re remember, potassium only has a, a plus one charge, so we don't divide it by two. And this is why potassium... Okay, so that's supposed to be 780. Anyhow, if you did the math, you would not get that number, nor that number. Uh, of course, the 453.6 stays the same because that's what a pound weighs. But um, I guess for the sake of this experiment or this uh, demonstration, I can take the 39 and divide it by, or actually multiply it by uh, 9,072, and that equals 353,808. You divide that by 453.6 at 780 pounds, right? So I'm gonna write these numbers over here on the board because we're gonna use them here in a minute. So calcium is 400, magnesium is 243, uh, potassium is 780, and then sodium is uh, is going to be 460, I believe. I'll double check. I'm going off my memory. I actually just put it all in an Excel spreadsheet and let Excel do all the math, so sometimes I forget. So we'll go ahead and do it again. 23 grams times 9,072 uh, divide by 453.6, and I get 460. Exactly. All right. Awesome. Okay. So we'll skip to the next slide. Uh, understanding the calculations now. So these are the numbers just for those four main ones that we're looking at. So CEC uh, times pounds of a desired cation times a desired percent base saturation equals the pounds per acre of an element in cations desired or uh, cations of an element desired or I'm sorry, elements of a certain cation desired. So we look at then at this example, if we have a CEC of 10, we multiply that by 40 pounds to the acre uh, for calcium, and then you multiply that by 65% because we're shooting for a uh, base saturation of 65%. That should equal 2,600 pounds to the acre of calcium, right? And then you subtract our value found, say the soil sample says we have 1,000 pounds. So if you subtract 1,000 pounds from 2,600 pounds, you know that that particular acre needs 1,600 pounds to the acre of elemental calcium. That makes sense? Well, it's just an example. <laughs> it does happen. But that's a, lot of, that's a lot of calcium, right? Now, this is just numbers now. So, again, you go out. That's just elemental calcium. You go out and you buy lime, and the lime says it's only 32% calcium. You've got to take that 1,600 pounds and divide it by 0.32, you'll find out you're going to need uh, three times that about. about three times that. Yeah, about 4,500 pounds. You're talking about a two, over two tons to the acre of lime just to satisfy the need of calcium in this particular example. That's a lot of calcium. But that's how you calculate these numbers. So looking at something like that versus, uh, I'll give you an example of a guy, uh, one of the gentlemen I spoke with down by uh, Albany, Oregon, uh, he, no, Salem, east of Salem, he was, he did uh, green beans and sweet corn, I think, that he sold to Norpac, and, you know, he says he called out the extension, or the consultant, I uh, don't remember if he was from Wilbur Ellis or CPS or where he came from, but anyway, wants to find out, hey, uh, so, you know, what should I do with my ground, how do I farm it, and the ag consultant says, oh, well, you want to put, you know, 2,000 pounds to the acre of lime, and you want to do this, and you want to do this. Why do I need lime if my, you know, my pH, you know, he looks at the pH and he says, his pH is fine. Why do you want me to put lime down? Well, it's just what everybody does. <laughs> you see? You know, 
when you're getting that kind of advice, you know, I, I don't know, it sets you up for failure in, in my book. But really, you need to know how to make, you know, how to kind of make these guesses, his guesstimate. And, uh, you know, he had a really high, I forget, his soil was like a CEC of 30 or 35 or something like that. So, you know, that naturally at 65 or 68 percent base saturation well you know we'll do we'll do an example so say we got a soil out in salem you tell me it's got a base a cec of 35 right uh cec and then you want to know well how much calcium do you need so you say well you multiply that by 400 pounds to the acre and then you tell me uh well uh i don't know it's got a base saturation of 68 percent okay so we multiply that by 68 percent uh, so what do we have? Well, let's do the math. It's going to be a lot, I promise. Somewhere around 12,000 pounds or something like that. 9,520 pounds to the acre. What did I say, 9,520? Uh, uh, calcium here. So you could see if you have a CEC of 35 versus a CEC of 5. You know, I, in fact, I'll do this example just for the sake. You can see this is going to be what, divided by 7? It's the only thing that's going to be different. You have 1,360 uh, to achieve the same thing. So you see how your bucket is a lot smaller. You see how in the example of a CEC of 5 versus a CEC of 35, you have 7 times more calcium in that soil to achieve the same, usually the same pH or the same percent base saturation. That's where this balancing comes in. So if you come in a soil like this soil here, it's five, and you tell me, well, the extension agent says you should dump, uh, you know, 2,000 pounds to the acre of lime at the beginning of the season, uh, which is going to equate to, what, about 600 pounds of elemental calcium. Well, if you're looking for about 1,360 to be happy and you dump that much calcium down, you're going to throw things out of whack, big time, in a hurry, you know, in a hurry, folks. I'll get back to what I was talking about earlier now, balancing, and we'll get back on track here. We'll talk about this scenario. This is a field out in, uh, in uh, western Massachusetts. Thankfully, I don't have these CECs of 35. So sometimes people ask, you know, hey, what, what, you know, what should be, you know, the higher the CEC, the better, right? Well, yes, if it's not out of whack. <laughs> As you saw in this example, if you've got a just huge number, that's really nice, I guess, but it's not balanced, then, man, you're going to pay good money to get that balance, and all of a sudden it's not really that practical. So you're going to be fighting a lot of these issues until you finally get it right. I know some of the farms in the valley that have, uh, have taken them maybe 10 to 15 years to get it right, just because their CECs are so high. But, you know, once they get it right, man, it produces great. Whether it's an orchard or vegetable production, uh, I think Persephine Farms is one of them, and they're out in Lebanon, Oregon. Uh, another one over in uh, Peoria, uh, Berry producer in Peoria, Oregon, the same scenario. Another one over in uh, just across the river, the Willamette River in uh, Philomath, Oregon. I think it's Gathering Together or Better Together, one or the other, I don't remember. Uh, the similar scenario, but you know, the, the guy that manages that farm, they got about 120 acres of vegetable production. Uh, happened to go through all the same schooling I did, and then I, uh, anyway, we got down to talking, and he's another person that tells me, you know what? Uh, just like they told me, they told him when I was in school, this, this Albrecht method doesn't work, but we use it, I use it, it works. Yeah, I mean, it just, it works, folks, but it just, you got to find ways to use this in a, in a, in a that, that's practical. You just can't jump to extremes. I, I have done these major additions like that, but usually only in, you know, greenhouses or something else where I'm pushing it hard. 
I want to get it there overnight. But these big acreages like that with, with crops that just don't make money, no, you're not going to get your money back. You know, it's, it's, it's not practical. Um, but if you can learn how to do this, little by little, you can get that thing in the right direction. Okay, so here I did some uh, math. Now, we took this sample. We saw what our base saturation, uh, what, what values we found, and then, of course, what our base saturations are. We're going to calculate what we got in there, and then we're going to calculate what we should have, and then we're going to make changes, etc. So, um, first thing I want to note is when I took this soil sample, I, I said 8 inches. Okay, so when I put that on the, uh, on the paper, I came up with, I came up with, uh, I'm sorry, I came up with 8 inches. So now, because I have 8 inches, remember the numbers that we originally came up with was for uh, 6 inches. So essentially, I have to take the number that I, I submitted as my depth of my soil sample and divide it by 6 inches. All right, so if you submit 12, then you divide by 12. Uh, by six, I'm sorry. So uh, you'd have to have that multiplier in there to be uh, to adjust for the the depth of your soil sample. So I have my CC of 6.24, uh, uh, eight divided by times eight divided by six times 400 pounds per the acre of calcium times 65 uh, percent equals 2,157 pounds to the acre of calcium. The value that was actually found was 1,404. What is needed is 1,754. This field here, now we're going to look at magnesium. We have all the same math, except we're multiplying it by 243 and a 15% base saturation. That tells us we're looking for about three, uh, 302 pounds to the acre. Uh, we look at what the value we actually found, which was 184. We see that we need 118 pounds, right? You look at CEC 6.24, same math, et cetera, seven, 780 times you know, for potassium, and then a 4%, you need 258. So even though this number is so big, you really only need a small percentage, so it works out to be quite small. And then, of course, I'm, I need 140 pounds. So uh, let's see, with sodium, again, it's also deficient. Uh, ends up working out to 53 pounds to the acre would be recommended in this particular soil. And this field, I actually just limed it. I just put 4,000 pounds to the acre, and it was a dolomitic lime. And now it's, uh, forget what it was at now, 68 and 18 or something like that. Uh, definitely corrected itself within a year. But like I said, the CEC is only 6.24. You can do that on a low CEC soil. So like the video I talked about that I played earlier today, you know, you have to just keep making more additions as they're necessary. With a bigger CEC soil, you can grow these crops and you can pull a lot of mineralogy out. And you know, if you pull it out, and you take it away from the farm, you should have got paid for it. So if you grew a product and you sold it, you should have got paid for it. Therefore, you should have the money to put the nutrients back in. If you didn't do that, then, you know, I mean, it, you know, you buy the property and, you know, it's already empty. And it's like buying a brand new car with no engine and transmission in it. You know, you, you, you got gypped. <laughs> you felt like you got robbed, right? But, yeah, it... it if you got a good deal on it, I guess it's worth it, huh? You just get an engine put in there. You'll be all right. So, uh, okay, good question. What if something is in excess? Okay, so if we have an excess, uh, it depends on what it is. So, I don't know, pick one. I'll let you choose the scenario. Maybe you have something in mind. Magnesium, okay. 
That's a that's a, a that's a very common scenario where magnesium is in excess, yet calcium is deficient. And the reason is usually because they're using the wrong type of limestone, usually domitic, uh, instead of the calcitic, or or they just use domitic always, and it just builds up the magnesium after a while. Uh, so some some farmers tend to do that where they do it out of habit. They just you know oh well I've always used domitic I'm going to use domitic, or they don't really understand that there's a difference between the two. Uh, either scenario can give you a soil like that. So when you come in and you look to amend this, you need to, when you add a pure calcitic limestone, it'll begin to actually bump the magnesium off the colloids, uh, allowing it to leach and leave the system through some other means. Uh, but it'll also, it also tends to knock the calcium and the sodium off if you dump it in, in, in excesses. But in this particular example, we had a 36 or 39% base saturation of hydrogen, and hydrogen is always going to be the first one to run off the colloid. So when I add, if I were to, like in this example, I saw that the pH was so low, I had such a high base saturation of calcium, I felt very comfortable going in and dumping the amounts that would be necessary to balance the whole thing. And in one year, I was able to correct it. So okay. Well, pH, if the pH is low, then you can, you know, it gives you room to get away with dumping these excessive amounts. But if you have a high pH, uh, that means that the rest of it is Something else is tied up. It could be potassium, magnesium. Something is out of whack, right? Um, I don't think I have a good test to show you, but we'll just say that the pH in this soil is 8 or 7 even, and uh, magnesium maybe is 39. Actually, I had that one from, uh, from that uh, greenhouse. In this example, I have a pH of 8.8. Um, base saturation of calcium is 36, of magnesium is 20, and of potassium is 38 of sodium is 2.7, and of hydrogen, of course, it's zero. And other bases is 2.6. So in this example, if I were to dump a lot of calcium, a lot of uh, calcitic lime, which I actually use straight calcium carbonate, food-grade calcium carbonate in this system because it's finely ground and reacts quickly. Uh, so I use that. What that's going to do is bump this potassium off, and probably I'll see some of that magnesium knock off as well. So what I'm going to do is end up putting a lot of, that, of those nutrients into the uh, soil solution. And because I have a crop in there that's currently hungry for potassium and magnesium, I can expect it to actually take it up. So what I did is I, you have to arrest your additions of potassium that normally you'd make um, to swell up that fruit. And just go ahead and let whatever gets bumped off the colloid uh, do it, do, you know, be taken up by the crop. But if it wasn't in a greenhouse, uh, you'd end up with a high... Uh, salts in the soil and it gets real difficult when you do that because uh, with such high ph's it oftentimes takes a long time for the uh, the carbonate to break down uh if you don't um if you have bad water quality which is tends to be an issue when you have real serious imbalances in uh in, in uh, your soils in a arid environment where you would have such a high ph Okay, so he's asking about what would happen with something like phosphorus. He's been building phosphorus. Now, what you, what, phosphorus is not a cation. It's an anion. Right. And so you're not, you're, you're, any reactions you have with that phosphorus, uh, would, if, it's, if you're using synthetic forms of phosphorus, uh, what, is it rock phosphate? Okay, so rock phosphate, depending on what type of rock phosphate it is, it's already bonded to calcium. So it doesn't really want to bond to magnesium. 
So it's kind of in the soil doing its own thing. So when you come in with lime, you're going to knock, you're really, you're going to be affecting your magnesium, your potassium, and everything else that's on the colloid, and phosphorus is not on the colloid. So it's not likely that you're going to affect phosphorus. How about copper? More on something else? Cop copper, the, the trace, the, the more trace ones, um, yes, there is, but because there's such an insect, oh, copper is highly unlikely because copper actually stays onto the colloid with much stronger affinity than calcium, and it's such a small amount that it's not likely. I mean, the first quitters are going to be your, your, your uh, monovalent cations, which is going to be sodium and potassium. They're going to be the first ones to get bumped off the colloid to make way for something like calcium in that scenario, especially in this scenario if you have an insane amount of potassium. That potassium is going to get knocked off. And if you're in a desert soil, you're just going to be precipitating uh, probably potassium sulfate. What you might have to fight with is low sulfur in the event that you had this scenario in your type of production system outdoors in a desert environment. That's probably what I would expect to find. How you got your potassium this high, you know, I don't know. Maybe you've got a lot of potassium in that soil. So I don't know. Something like that. But this is a greenhouse. It's kind of maybe not a good example for what you're bringing up because there's so many different things that actually change in the system. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.